Well, thanks so much, uh, Toby, for facilitating that moment. Um, you know, before we jump into uh, the book of Exodus, which is a part of our series called One, uh, I just want to say everybody that's, 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 that's either serving alongside or coming, along, coming with us while some of our leaders are figuring this out, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. These are the character, characteristics, I think, of City Gates. We're a church who we're quick on our feet and we're okay with change. And I want to commend you and I want to commend the leaders, especially the guys involved this morning for your service. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. So uh, we've got quite a bit to, to uh, jump uh, or get through today. So if you have your Bibles, it'd be good for you to open up to the book of Exodus. Okay. We're going to look at a couple of verses there today. Um, but before we do, let me kind of lay the, lay the foundation a little bit. Um, there is something quite inspiring about a liberation story. I mean, you know, whether it is a prison break series you watch um, or, you know, like currently I'm, I'm a, I mean, that's old news, right? I don't know if there's a new one out there. Anyway, tells you the last time I switched on a TV. But um, so I'm, I'm currently working through a long walk to freedom. This is kind of a liberation story of my own nation that I'm, I'm a, a national of, you know, South Africa. Very inspiring. Um, I've been reading this, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that actually in North America right now, it's also Black History Month, and so many kids in their schools, you know, you, you, you're reminded of the transatlantic uh, slave trade and the, uh, you know, emancipation of, 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 uh, of slavery, and it's been abolished, you know, since I think the 19th century. Um, and so all of those stories, we watch the movies that they make, you know, to honor some of the players in, in those, those stories. We read the books of people that lead uh, 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 those that are oppressed uh, into into uh, uh, liberation, incredibly inspiring. And actually, the book of Exodus is, a, is an inspiring story. The same, same thing's going on there. It's a, a nation being liberated from slavery, and it's the account of that taking place. Now, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, and, uh, and, and I'm going to try and at least give you my summary as I've journeyed through these 40 chapters in preparation for today. I'm going to give you my summary. It might not be the best one, but it's my one. And if you want to write something down and forget everything else we say, uh, that would be fine that you write this thing down and you go check it out for yourself. You know, verify whether my summary is, in fact, correct. So here we go. It's four, four main, major things I want to leave with you. Number one, um, it's a story of God keeping his promises. You would remember last week, that was quite a big theme. God makes promises and he's committed to keeping them. But he's keeping his promises despite it being a one-sided often relationship. Okay, it's like the people he makes the promise and the covenant with, they don't always meet the criteria, but he keeps his promises nonetheless. And yeah, he's setting his people free as, as one of the ways of keeping his promises. Uh, from a very cruel context, he sets them free from a cruel master, not into a, a scenario where they're now absent of a master, but he sets them free from a cruel leader into a new context with a good leader himself, God. Okay, he's a good God. That's the context of service. They find themselves in slavery, but they moved into serving a good master, God. And uh, and so, in many ways, the destination. We always think Exodus. They've been taken out of Egypt into the Promised Land. There's a disguised destination in there, which is actually God Himself, leading them to God Himself. And lastly, number four, it happens through mediation and substitution. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize it. God keeps His promises. Despite it being one-sided, setting his people free from a cruel context and a master, not to a context that is absent of a master, but in a, into a place where they serve a good God. And it happens through mediation.
and substitution. All right, you can close your Bibles, we can go home. This was a great sermon, thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, while, before I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, you're going to close your eyes. And while we're going to close our eyes, my wife's going to pour me a glass of water. Thank you so much, love. So let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you so much. Even in this story, we're going to discover how you provide water to a hungry nation, as I'm going to be provided water from my wife right now. And I ask that as we open up your word, that you would feed us and provide us with water for our souls. In Jesus' name, would you lead me, Lord, to, to, uh, to do this moment justice? In Jesus' name, amen. And the miracle arrived. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, so you can cut this book basically in half. Chapters 1 to 19, 20, somewhere around there, is actually an epic drama. Honestly, it is fun and amazing to read. Excitement all the way. Two of my favorite animated movies uh, are actually, I think they're DreamWorks, Disney. I'm not sure if they're connected, but it's Joseph, King of Dreams. Joseph, King of Dreams. My sweetheart, I'll take the sermon from here onwards. Thanks for your your help. Joseph, King of Dreams, as well as Moses, Prince of Egypt. And they are... Yes. Well, thanks, Brian. Brian, you're also not allowed to say anything today. This is going to be fun. You know, there's technical difficulties on all, on all levels. But those are my, those are my two favorite uh, uh, animated stories. And they actually, you know, it's the end of Genesis from last week and the beginning of Exodus, or at least all the way up until chapter 20, because it's an epic drama. It's a story worth telling and retelling. It's amazing. And of course, in those movies, it's not 100% accurate, but I can tell you, someone who loves the Bible, I, I would still recommend watching those. Really great. That's the first 20 chapters. Then, unfortunately, from there, the drama gives way to details, okay? It's not, no one's made a movie of the second half of the book of Exodus, okay? It does, you know, it's a lot of rules and regulations, and hopefully today we'll give you some context to make sense of those last 20 chapters, because they are still very, very important. Okay, so we're going to jump uh, you know, across the whole book, starting in chapter one, we're going to read nine verses, nine uh, sections of scripture across the 40 chapters. So I trust you can journey with me. We'll start off in the best place, the beginning, Exodus chapter one. I'll just read verse seven. It says here, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Remember, we talked about the connections that should fire up right there. there there's there are echoes of Eden and actually even uh, echoes of what God did with uh, uh, um, uh, Noah and then what God did with Abraham. Be fruitful and increase and multiply and fill the earth. That's, that was what God said to, to humanity. And we see those echoes even in chapter one. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. Uh, 400 or so years between uh, the story of Joseph in Egypt, and where we pick up here in Exodus. And man, they multiply. Okay, so much so that into the villain, Pharaoh, okay, steps in into the story. And he was a cruel as well as a very scared leader. He saw the multitudes. He saw how big uh, Israel had grown. He was afraid that they might join his enemies, okay, and fight against him. And so he does some really cool things. It sets him up as a baddie. He makes them slaves. He makes them work really hard to build his empire. And then on top of that, he actually plans twice to kill their first, their babies, their sons in particular. Um, uh, first time was through the midwives. He kind of said to the midwives of, of, of the nation Israel, listen, if you see it's a boy, kill it. And, uh, and they loved the Lord, the midwives, and they dis- disobeyed Pharaoh. And, and so the second time he tried, he made this decree. He says, I want you uh, to you know, drown 
the firstborn uh, son of the Israelites, if it's a, if it's a, um, or the, uh, when a son is born. So terrible, terrible things. Um, and actually, chapter two, therefore, uh, ent- you know, enters the, I would say, the, the, the goody in the story. You know, I wouldn't say he's the hero because you'll, you'll see right now that he's not as great as we often think he is. Um, and uh, Moses is saved in spite of the evil, this evil plan. God uses this evil plan to actually save Moses. You, you, know, you might know the story. Uh, you know, he gets put in the basket and, and instead of drowning in the Nile, he's protected in this basket. Maybe there's some imagery there of the ark, you know, saving, saving uh, 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 Noah's family from judgment. You know, all of a sudden these pictures should start connecting in your mind. And he doesn't just save the child, but uses Moses to infiltrate the palace actually get into a place of influence again. And uh, it's amazing. Even Moses' mother, who had to give him up, God orchestrates the events in such a way that she ends up getting paid okay, to raise him uh, before she gives him back to the palace. It's incredible. Um, and of course, there's not a lot about his upbringing, but we can make some assumptions. We can certainly assume that Moses was educated. Moses got the cream of, cream of society, the best uh, education, uh, and, uh, and opportunities. And we know that Moses ended up writing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. In so many ways, I think God was like, hey, I need to, I need to put my story down. I, I, I found a way to do it. You know, I've made a way to do it. Isn't it incredible? Um, and we know that Moses was aware of his history. Okay? Uh, you'll see in chapter 2, he, he went to his people, the scriptures say, um, and he defended an Israelite from, uh, against an Egyptian. He actually ends up killing the Egyptian. Okay? And so he, he's afraid and he flees, therefore. Okay, so again, there's the first picture of Moses. It isn't perfect, okay? It takes a man's life and he has to run as a result. And he uh, flees uh, uh, away and uh, actually spends the next 40 years kind of uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in the desert almost, you know, um, learning to, to shepherd. Uh, 40 years later, the Pharaoh apparently dies and he goes back. Um, scripture says he was about 80. All right, so there's some real lessons of patience, you know, built into that chapter. Uh, he goes back and, uh, and, and as a result of God, hearing the cries of the people. So we're going to read that. Chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. If you have your Bibles, you should be there now. 23 to 25, chapter 2. During those many days, okay, many days is Bible code for 40 years. The king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. All right. So God uh, responds in chapter three uh, is, is, uh, is the burning bush account. This is also a fascinating story with God appears to Moses now, you know, as he's shepherding, uh, uh, appears to him. And as, it's interesting, the, as I mentioned, the 400-year gap between Joseph and, and, and Moses, you know, roughly, uh, reminds me of the 400-year gap between Malachi and, and the, the first gospel, you know, that there was this silence. And of course, people were oppressed in the Roman Empire and then enters, you know, a savior, Jesus, the gospels. And it's, it's similar in many ways, you know, 400 years of oppression and enters Moses, the mediator, um, yeah, for them. And in this burning bush account, uh, don't have time to look at all the details, but one important thing you must remember is God kind of introduces himself in a, in, in a different way, all right, to Moses. And uh, 
you know, the, the, his name is Yahweh. It's actually a word that we can't pronounce. But one of the ways when Moses said, who should I tell them is sending me? He said, tell them I am or I am that I am is sending me. Stop for a moment and just thinking about God describing himself as I am. And then you think about yourself, how you describe yourself. You know, hey, Brian, who are you? Well, I am the son of Larry. Okay. Pastor of the month. Um, uh, I don't know all of your uh, genealogies. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> but often we introduce ourselves that way. You know, oh, I am a web developer. I am a carpenter. You know, I am a salesman. You know, you find yourself defining yourself often around who you know and what you do. Um, and this is not the case with God. He's just, he simply is. He's like, I don't need any, I don't attach myself to anything to give me identity. I am. I am God. I am that I am. It's, it's powerful in terms of us understanding who God is. And it must make you think about the statements Jesus made about himself. In fact, one, one instance with the Pharisees offended them like crazy. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Boom. That was like a, like a shockwave through the hearers. That was sent through the hearers. Because he was identified. He was saying, that's me in the burning bush. Isn't it incredible? And so, you know, you have to also think about the other I am statements that you can find in the book of John. You know, Jesus says, I'm the bread, I'm the light, I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, the resurrection, the life, and so on. Uh, we, we have to think back at this moment when God revealed himself to Moses. And so, uh, chapter 4 um, is a, a covenant re- reminder, really, um, that's taking place. And notice, Moses responds to God's declaration of I am with a similar I am statements. It's not quite as grandeur. Moses saying, I am nobody. You know, basically, he's like, I, I am unable to speak. I, I am I'm, I, I'm not the guy. That's basically what he's saying. So that's his I am response to God. But God qualifies him, even though he is terribly un- disqualified and unqualified. God qualifies him. He gives him signs that he could use, he's, you know, with what is in his hand, the staff. He even says, I'm going to give you help. You, you know, your, your, your brother uh, um, Aaron actually is going to help you out. And uh, in his interaction there, God uses covenant language again. We saw in, uh, in, in chapter 2 that he remembered his promise, his covenant to Abraham, and he uses the same language here. But let's read verses 24 to 25 of chapter 4. That says um, the following. Because this is a strange moment that happens. After God is like, you, no, you are the man. I'm, I want to use you. Stop making excuses. We find ourselves here. He's on his way back. To, Israel, to, to the Israelites, not to Egypt. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met with him and sought to put him to death. Wait a minute. Well, what's going on here? God's like, I want to use you. And then in the next verse, it's like, oh, but I want to kill you. <laughs> what, what's going on? We have to ask ourselves, what is going on here? Okay, so verse 25. Then Sephora took a flint and cut off his son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom Groom of blood to me. What is happening here? Remember I said God is using Abrahamic covenant. You're like, Vic, you better make this one <laughs> make sense because I don't know what's going on here. Okay. Um, she, you know, Zipporah, his wife, she, it's an, an emergency circumcision. Have you ever heard of that before? I just, I think we just coined it. All right. Emergency circumcision on her son. And, and she touches his uh, husband's feet with it. And, and the Lord's anger, in a sense, relents. What is going on there? Well, it's got to do with that covenant. If you remember the promise God made to Abraham, there was a sign attached to that covenant. He had to circumcise every male 
in, in his party, you know, whether you were in his family or a servant, everybody. And because it was a sign that God had made a promise to him. And there's a sense that Moses carelessly and disobediently ignored the sign when he went uh, 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 away. And, uh, and in this moment, I mean, thank God for a good wife hey? <laughs> who, who helps him out here. Uh, I mean, let me drink this water that my wife provided with me. Just as a, as a vivid illustration of how good our women are. Mm. <laughs> Take a cup of water over an emergency circumcision anytime. Absolutely. Anyway, it wasn't even him. It was his son. So poor boy, you know. He's like, what did I do? Why did I, you know? But anyway, um, God was reminding in this moment, Moses and, you know, us as readers, that their relationship with God, indeed their very lives, depended on that covenant. That covenant was still in place. So that's, that's, that's the strange little thing that happens in chapter 4. That, again, just underlines the importance in, in, of this covenant that God is keeping, this promise that he's keeping. So chapter 5 and 6 actually gets, you know, gets to uh, Egypt. It speaks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just throws a tantrum, basically. He just says, no, no. I'm not going to let them go. No, it's my ball. I'm not, you can't play with my, my, you know, you can't have it. Okay. This is what he's doing. And uh, in chapter seven, so you can forward there. Um, there's this reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we also have to stop. And as you would have read through it, you would go, what is going on here? Okay. Because it tells us Pharaoh is hardening his heart. It also tells us that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So which one is it? Okay. Well, let's read it first. Verses uh, three to four in chapter seven. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And through, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Okay, so there's the case that he won't listen, but God will harden his heart. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Okay, so here um, we have this reference, and it pops up a few times as the chapters go by, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not only Pharaoh hardening his heart towards God. And uh, the question is, which one is it? And the answer is yes. The Bible is very happy <laughs> to describe the scenario in, in those ways. It leaves you with that tension. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we've preached actually on this uh, uh, a little bit uh, when we started the, the, the book of Peter, the, the, the two letters of Peter. So you can go back to that. But man is sinful. We, we've seen that in Genesis. Like We even see that in, in Exodus. Look at, look at Moses. Man, actually, his inclination of his heart is sinful. And so God doesn't have to create evil in someone's heart for them to re- rebel. God actually just has to remove his gracious softening uh, away. And someone's heart would just you know, harden up like concrete. But actually, that, that's, that's really what the Bible tells us, that, that God needs to intervene and help us. Otherwise, if we leave leaves us to ourselves, we would just rebel. Easy peasy. That's just the default setting in humanity. Okay. So um, let's, let's uh, keep, uh, keep journeying. Okay. So chapter 7 to 10 is then God, you know, uh, throwing down the plagues onto the, uh, the, the Egypt because of Pharaoh saying no. Every time. Every time. No. Then there's a plague. Okay. Will you let them go now? No. Another plague. Will you let them go now? No. Another plague. Okay. Um, and... Uh, at this stage, Egypt is the most powerful nation on, on the earth, okay? And, uh, and it assumes, therefore, that Egypt's gods, lowercase g, uh, are therefore the most powerful as well, including Pharaoh, who they all have, were, were seen as a god, the, an incarnate god, okay? And God's declaration of war, in a sense, is against 
the false gods of Egypt through these plagues. One by one, every single plague, if you do a bit of research, every plague confronts a god, a, a false god, an idol in Egypt. Okay, right up until the, the ninth plague, okay, where um, it's where the sun gets darkened. You know, one of the gods is Amun-Ra. Actually, you find that guy in, a, I think, a referenced in... Night at the museum, one of one of another really great uh, uh, a movie you can watch. Amun Ra, you know he has a lift in there actually, which is quite funny. But um, so so uh, this you know God attacks each and every uh, Egyptian idol uh, through these plagues, showing that He alone is to be worshipped and He alone is the is God. And then the final blow comes in Exodus eleven. Lex, Exodus eleven is a dark chapter, and uh, verses seven. Let me just read verse 7 for you in Exodus 11. God makes an interesting statement there. He says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay? He was about to send the plague of death on the firstborn child any firstborn child in the nation and then he makes the statement what's going on there well again it's connected to a god anubis i think is how you pronounce it was the god of death and often if you look at you know egyptian history uh you'll see the uh, head of a dog is how it was depicted and so when god is saying you're not a dog will growl against it he's not talking about some mutt running around you know some pavement special uh so you know he's talking about the the god of death in that sense will not touch his people. They will not have a claim over them at all. So it's like that final blow. And, uh, and I also want you to remember that in the ancient world, so much hope was placed in the firstborn son. It was like the thing that, you, that, that meant, meant that your lineage would carry on, that inheritance would be passed down. If you were given a son, it's like, ah, oh, you can rest. Your future is secure. And so God was actually, you know, ripping out that carpet of security out from underneath people in doing that as well. And so Exodus 12, we find ourselves with the Passover. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, Exodus 12. I want us to read actually verses 21 to 28 in this passage. But here you'll see God teaches that nation critical lessons about their own sin and God's plan of salvation. And this moment will, get, will be remembered from, from this moment onwards all the way up until when Jesus uh, steps onto the scene. Okay, so it's in a very important moment. Let's read that together. Verses 21 to 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that it is that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared 
our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worship. Two things here that God is teaching them. Number one, they themselves are guilty of sin. They're guilty of sin. In fact, they deserve death as much as the Egyptians. There wasn't a sense that you're Israelites, you're my nation. You just stay in your homes and everything's going to be fine. No. In fact, if Egyptians had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, they too would have been saved. And if an Israelite failed to put blood on their doorposts, they would be judged. You know, it, it was, it, that was the first lesson. But secondly, this judgment, this curse upon them for sin can be borne by another. That's what the story de- declares. In this case, it was the lamb. They knew unmistakably when their children asked them, what does this mean? They said, let me tell you what this means. This means a little lamb died in the place of us instead of our firstborn children. That, they, they were taught that the curse can be borne by another. There can be a substitute. And this Passover, as I said, was to be observed every year until we know it was done on the night of Jesus' death. It was a Passover meal, right? And in John 1, 29, you should now think about that statement that John the baptizer made when Jesus walked towards him. He says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. It's like, oh, you got to think back to this Exodus moment. And it's amazing that Exodus 12, verse 43 to 50, we won't read it, but God actually stipulates that foreigners might be present there, that they would have taken shelter under the blood of the lamb too. He said to them, you know, Egyptians and immigrants that are part of you, they need to celebrate it the same way. You need to circumcise them too, okay, as a sign of the covenant that they're taking shelter under the promise that God's made. Okay, so this lamb to take away the sin of the whole world, it was even in the story of, of saving Israel. Others could join in and take shelter under the blood of the lamb. It worked. It liberated them. It saved them from judgment. Okay, so Exodus 13. Um is a is this sort of divine GPS moment, okay? Uh, they, they get introduced to a feast of eating unleavened bread. It's like what they ate before manna came out of heaven. But they get given this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, just this divine GPS that leads them uh, onwards uh, out of their, their slavery. And, and Exodus 14, again, another epic, thrilling adventure, a crossing of the Red Sea. You don't have time to look at that, but God just flexes there. Proper flexing of God's might, okay? Very exciting. And there's beautiful symbolisms there, even for us, when we get baptized, you know, there's a sense that we go through the waters and our sin is buried and behind us, just like the Egyptian army was buried and behind the Israelites. Beautiful imagery, go check it out, okay? But you'd think that by now the Israelites are just like for the Lord. Man, he is such a powerful liberator. He's made us get free. But then you hit chapter 15 to 17, and what do you find? Grumbling. Grumbling, moaning, complaining, doubting the Lord. But you also find grace. Grumbling and grace. As the people grumble, they even say silly things like, we want to go back to slavery. We want to go back there. It was actually better. And God gives them grace. He makes bitter water sweet so they can drink it. They keep grumbling. And he brings them, he gives them manna from heaven. He feeds them miraculously every day so that they don't go hungry. And their grumbling actually reaches a climax in chapter 17. I'd love for us to read a few verses there as well. Chapter 17, my goodness. They, uh, they almost put God and Moses on trial. They're about to stone Moses and they're accusing God of bringing them out just so that he could kill them, as if he's spiteful. And 17, chapter 17, verses 4 to 6, we read this. 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And so many ways God's saying, okay, fine. Let's set up a tribunal. Let's set up a judge. This is like a courtroom, okay? Bring the elders as witnesses and bring the rod of judgment, you know? Um, let's, uh, let's see where this goes. And you, you just brace yourself. You're just waiting for Israel to be smited, right? Like, oh my goodness, here we go. And uh, what happens in verse 6? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. You can almost miss this if you just keep reading. You know, it's so subtle. But God is showing that instead of the people being struck, the nearby rock gets struck with the rod of judgment. And where is God? He said, I will stand before you there on the rock. And so this principle of substitution is again in this little moment here. The one on whom the rod falls because of Israel's grumbling is actually on God himself in a sense. It's a picture of what one that we know, Jesus, the rock of the ages, will be struck on that cross and living water would flow out for us. Man, isn't this amazing? This is incredible. And, and look, Whoever preaches through numbers will give you a slightly different account there. I mean, this is the big story. But Moses made some mistakes in that moment as well, and they will flesh that out too. But you'll see that later in the series. And so, you know, God in his kindness enters into another covenant with him. And remember, covenants are these promises. You know, there's a covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham. This is now the Mosaic covenant, right? These promises that God makes. And he enters by his grace into a new Covenant with him. And this is where the story changes a bit, of course. Chapter 19 to 23. Now, there's a lot of laws and regulations. Maybe we can read chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. So turn your pages. Verses 4 to 6 is this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, I want you to understand that God is saying, I saved you by grace before you've done a thing. That's basically what he's saying. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's the context for these laws and regulations that, uh, that God gives. He's saying, I'm not only a deliverer, but in this verse that we read here, he's saying, I'm also the destination. Okay? That you would be my people. That's the language that he use, uses. Um, you, uh, you know, my treasured possession. It's, it's amazing. He's, he's telling them that he ultimately is the destination. Yes, they're heading to a promised land. But friends, how on earth are they going to survive in the presence of a holy God? Again, you've got to understand, okay, this is where the, the next, the next uh, uh, section is the Ten Commandments, okay? But God gives them uh, sort of a summary of the whole law in these 10, 10 commandments. And, and God speaks it out to the people. I mean, to the point where they're basically saying, Moses, this is terrifying. Can you just speak with God? And we'll just, you know, you can just give us the, you know, the story yourself. And, and 52 other sort of commands are given after that uh, that's related to worship and social justice. And, and then when we get to Exodus 24, the people that heard it, and you know what they say? It's like, you know, like a marriage, like a wedding. They say, I do. We do. Do you promise you'll be faithful to this God who's rescued you? Uh, we do. I do. 
is what they say. They accept the terms of the covenant in chapter 24. And it's a blood moment. Moses sacrificed animals and then he sprinkles blood on the people when they say, I do. Because in many ways they're saying, may it be to us like it was to these animals if we break this covenant. We understand. Death would be the appropriate consequence. And then chapter 25 to chapter 31. I mean, like I said, from chapter 19, the, the thriller turns into a cookbook. Okay, the thriller is really exciting to read. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, it's like you're holding a cookbook with lots of instructions. Okay, that's what the second half of, of Exodus feels like. Because now, um, you know, there is uh, the, all the instructions about the tabernacle uh, and, and the priests, that what they need to do. Um, but again... God is wanting to say and say, these are my people and they are a kingdom of priests. In other words, they represent me to the world, a nation, a kingdom of priests to show the whole world. It's the Abrahamic covenant and promise that's coming through there. So be set apart, live differently. When I move into the neighborhood, everything must change. You can't look like all the people around you. And often it's the same with Christianity. We say yes to Jesus and nothing changes. That's not actually how God works. He does bring about tremendous change. And these are types and shadows of what came to us in the new covenant. And so uh, in these tabernacle instructions that you see uh, in these chapters all the way to 31, lots of Eden imagery, okay, that takes place. I want us to read chapter 29, verses 43 to 46, if you can. This tabernacle, the instructions uh, and the instructions of the uh, the priests who, who run the tabernacle. This is what it says in verse 43. Chapter 29, therefore, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. He's talking about this tent, this tabernacle. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. Again, this is the point. You know, the point isn't to take them to a land, but to take them to, not to, you know, to possess a land, but to a person. Because I want to be with them. Again, echoes of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day to be among his people. That's the point of the tabernacle. And you should now think about John chapter 1, verse 14, which is, and the word God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God tabernacled among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of this tabernacle that was given to Moses to build in the desert. Ultimately, God's going to come in the flesh, Jesus, and tabernacle among us. Be with us. But Exodus 32, a great irony. They, they make a golden calf. They're like, no, we don't want God. We want an idol. We want some created thing. It's like they break in that moment. The first two commandments God gave them almost a month before that. Hey. You just see, we need help. We need help. You will have no other God before me. They make another God. And they even say silly things like, you took, you brought us out of Egypt. That's the stupid things that come out of their mouths. This thing we made with our gold and our silver, with the things that God blessed us as we were taken out of Egypt, by the way, because they plundered Egypt. People gave them jewelry. They took that stuff, melted down, make a carve and say, you, you took us out of Egypt. Oh my goodness. And again, now you're thinking, all right, brace yourself. Brace yourself. Here comes judgment. And they deserve judgment because this, that's what the covenant stipulates. They said just a few chapters before, may it be like us if we break it. May, may we be like these animals that were killed if we break it. 
But actually Moses stands up as a mediator. And God shows mercy because of his mediation. Again, a theme that comes through the Bible. We know ultimately that's what Jesus does for us, right? And, and, and because of his mediation, God relents. He shows mercy again. And then what he doesn't, does he do in 34? He renews the broken covenant. He actually also renews the broken tablets, by the way, because Moses came down, saw what they did, dropped the tablets, and he's like, all right. This time, I think he had to write it himself. Like, I think God wrote it with his finger, the first two. They messed up, but God's like, no, you do it. Okay, here the tablet, you write it. So he renews the covenant. He renews the tablets in, in that sense. And I would love for us to read chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. Because now, in that moment even, there's almost like another name reveal. Like, remember at the burning bush, God said to Abraham, I am. And, and then us, Abraham, God said to Moses. And then over here, Moses said, can I, can I see you? I want your presence. And, and God almost does another, another name reveal here in Verses 5 to 7, it says this. Chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. All right, so he didn't just say, I am. He didn't just say, Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Man, this nation experienced this over and over again in this short account, right? But we will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. It's like there is a holy God, but there's somehow he is gracious. How, How can he be gracious and be just. How can he be gracious and not be just? Like, Because he would be unjust if he would just swipe sin under the carpet. He, he punishes sin. This is the question that the, the Old Testament is helping us wrestle with. And we find that fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. And the pictures of the mediation and the substitution that comes through here in this book are all clues as to how these two verses can be held together. It's incredible. And so uh, verses 35 to 39 they end up building the tabernacle that they got all the instructions with, you know. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like God saying to them, if you build it, I will come, you know. Field of dreams. It's actually tabernacle, <laughs> tabernacle of dreams. If you build it, my glory will descend. I will come. And that's what happened. Okay. And again, lots of uh, details there. Um, but they know that this is because God is setting us apart. He's specific about it because we are unlike any other nation. He journeys with us. That's Exodus 33. God's presence separates Israel from any other nation on the face of the earth. And so we end up by uh, at chapter 40. Wow. Last chapter in Exodus. Okay. And so for centuries, this moment will be remembered by God's people as well, because the tabernacle is built. And, uh, and in this moment, God does come down and fill that tabernacle, which is in the middle of the camp, okay? It's not like outside. It's in the middle. All the tribes encamp around this tabernacle. God's in the middle of them. And he shows the world. And he declares to them that he's not some distant deity who lives far away in the heavens. That actually they are his people and he will be their God. And he truly will dwell among them. But then the chapter ends very strangely. Very strangely. Because you will see in verses 35 that actually 
Let me find it here. <clears throat> Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here's Moses, even though he's a great mediator, he's a great leader. He, he, he does not get to enter into the tabernacle. And it tells us, therefore, that the story isn't over. Something's still missing. Something's still happening. God might be dwelling amongst his people, but it's not like an Eden. Eden. There's, there seems to be still this sort of distance, of course. So Israel's uh, proximity, sinful Israel's proximity to a holy God. There are still a whole bunch of unknowns. It's anything but certain. That's how this book ends. And I trust that the other people preaching through Leviticus and preaching through uh, Numbers as well, you'll see that there's a moment where, I mean, Leviticus picks up from this moment. God speaking from the tent. And then Numbers starts off with God speaking in the tent with Moses. And so Leviticus, I mean, that's going to be a fun book to preach through. I'm so glad I'm not around for that one. But that is in a sense, like, how will God relate? holy among the people Leviticus tells you and at the end of Leviticus there's a sense that okay because of all those things all those rules and regulations Moses can enter in okay but that doesn't sound like first prize right and so we've got to keep reading we've got to keep studying and I'm so excited about that so I want us to end okay by taking communion together because Genesis uh, Exodus 12 you know the Passover moment is really the the the, the, the bit that shines out here and uh, yes, Leviticus and even the last 20 chapters of Exodus tells us that God commands holiness. He wants his people to be set apart, to be separated. But also in these chapters, we discover that God also provides holiness, substitutes, mediation. There's, there's something going on here. And we today, looking back at these stories, know that God provided. On the mountain of the Lord, he did provide to Abraham a lamb instead of his son. And, and, and to Exodus, the people in Exodus, God did provide the death of a lamb instead of the death of their sons, okay? And so today we stand here and we have, the, 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 this is our Passover meal where we go, God passed over us and our sin. It wasn't judged because he didn't pass over Jesus. He shed his blood and he gave his body. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, after a book like this, you, you cannot take this casually. You can only be thankful. Only be thankful. And so I want us to end off. If you're at home and you have your stuff ready, it's the moment to pick it up. And I'm going to ask Tanya, maybe, if you don't mind, baby, just to uh, share this with the people in the room over here. So, so have your things ready. And because of time, I'm actually going to just start leading us uh, in this moment. So as Tanya hands them out, and maybe you've got these things in your hand, I'll remind you that the bread represents the body of Jesus given for us. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know, on, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the, in, in the New Testament, it actually doesn't tell us when Jesus eats this meal with his disciples. It, it makes no mention of the lamb. Because in the sense, he was standing there saying, I am the lamb. I'm about to be slain for the sin of the world. So won't we, let's eat and celebrate that truth now together. Mm. And we know that the blood of that lamb in the Exodus account was put on the doorposts. And we know Jesus said, I am. One of his I am statements is, I am the door. Come through him and to the Father. Because he shed his blood 
his blood was shed in our place. When the people of Israel said to Moses and to God, yes, we accept the terms of this covenant. You know, if we break this covenant, may it be to us as it was to these animals that were killed. Actually, it was like that for Jesus. Because we did break the covenant, but he died in our place. The ultimate mediator, the ultimate substitute, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. Let's drink this and celebrate. Mm. We praise you, Jesus, for fulfilling what we read about in this Exodus account. That you liberated us from slavery and sin, from the tyranny of Satan, from the tyranny of the sin inside of us. So many glimpses in this book of what you ultimately came and did for us. We thank you, Lord, and it's so wonderful to be celebrating around the communion table, the Lord's Supper, as a vivid picture of what was done for us. We love you and we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.